if you've been with us, you'll know we have been going through the letter to the Hebrews for some time. Uh, we're nearly at the end. We're almost through chapter 12, and then the, it, those of you who, who know Hebrews or have looked on the next page will see there is only one... Or, on the next page, it might not even be on the next page. I'm saying that everyone's Bible is exactly the same as mine, of course. We'll see that there's only one more chapter. It might be on the same page for you. Anyway, I'll stop rambling. We're starting. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and that is burning with fire. To darkness, gloom and storm. To a trumpet blast. Or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. Because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come... To Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, Once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So as I say, we've been making our way through Hebrews, making our way through Hebrews 12 recently, and as I say, after this, the writer, uh, it's helpfully divided or unhelpfully, or however we deem it, it's divided into chapters in our modern Bibles. But in some ways, this seems like a helpful division. The last chapter, the writer moves into kind of closing exhortations and encouragements and, and, and bringing greetings and different things. He kind of moves into a, this is my conclusion, bit. Once we get through chapter 12, and it's almost like at this end part of chapter 12, he's coming to a big climax, there's a big climax here of all that he's been saying, all that he's been pointing out, all that he's been saying, this is the truth, this is what it's all about, this is what God has done. He brings it to a climax here with this wonderful picture that he paints. And it's as if he's asking a question, which I'm going to ask today. Do you see where you stand? Do you see, do you recognise where it is that you have been placed? Do you see what it is that God has done for you? And who you now are 
in Christ. Do you see where you stand? You see, the writer starts painting a picture for them and he he tells them something they would know well. He's painting a picture of something they would understand. You see, maybe for us it's slightly less familiar, but nevertheless a story that many of us will be familiar with. He's really saying to them, look, you remember, Moses brought the Israelites out of Egypt. I brought them out with Moses leading the way. I took them out. You crossed the Red Sea together as if on dry land. You came out into the wilderness. And as I led you through the wilderness, I led you to a mountain, to Mount Sinai. Came to the mountain. And, and when, we got, when you got to the mountain, I called Moses to come up and I said to Moses, tell the people to prepare. Tell the people to prepare because in three days, I'm coming to speak to you. I am coming to meet with you. That's what I'm planning to do. That's what I'm going to do. And so for three days, the people were to prepare and to, to cleanse themselves, to clean their, to clean their clothes, to, to purify themselves and be ready for God coming. And we can read about that in Exodus chapter 19 and 20 if you want to later. Uh, but they prepared themselves for three days and on the morning of the third day, as they woke up, what did they see? black cloud and a storm raging and lightning and thunder and all of this and it was dark and it was as the writer to the Hebrews says here it was darkness and gloom and storm and there was fire on the mountain and smoke was rising all over the place this 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 kind of incredible crazy awesome scene of thick clouds and storm and darkness And a trumpet blast that blasted out as God came and met them at the mountain. God came down onto the mountain and he called Moses to come up and see him. And then as they were seeing this sight, the people heard the voice of God. And as Moses recounts in a in Deuteronomy, later on, uh, as he's looking back on this story, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses says this is what happened. Another summary of what happened there. In Deuteronomy 4 and verse 11, you came near, saying, talking to all the people, you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens, with black clouds and deep darkness. Can you imagine this sight? This is crazy. Mountains on fire, there's clouds everywhere, there's smoke rising up. You came near and you saw this. And then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow, and then wrote them on two stone tablets and so you see this incredible sight and then this voice booms out from the midst of the fire and the cloud and the smoke on the mountain and almost unsurprisingly the people are terrified 
Those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. And particularly, he talks about this command. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. It's like, there's this terror, but God proclaims his commandments, his ten commandments to his people. And yes, he says, if anyone, even an animal, touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. This is, it's, this, you can get the picture, this is quite a frightening sight. Quite a terrifying moment. The people are terrified. Moses, Moses, don't let God speak to us again. That's what he says. They say in, in Exodus chapter 19, don't let God speak to us again. You go, you speak to God, you let God speak to you, and you come and tell us what he says. We don't want to hear God's voice again. Because we don't know, maybe, maybe if we hear him again, we're gonna die. They're, they're terrified at this mountain. And so he paints this picture, the writer to the Hebrews, of remember this, remember, remember this is what your ancestors experienced, this is, this is what you're so familiar of. The, the people came to Mount Sinai and God gave them the law and it was a terrifying sight. And God gave them the law and they would know this is what this is all about, this is all wrapped up here, Mount Sinai, the law, the old covenant, Moses, everything about it. They would have known it so well. And he paints this picture, in it, but we have to remember the first four words of the, the passage. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched. You have not come to this mountain. You have not come to this fearful, terrifying sight. Because he doesn't finish his picture there. He says, you've not come to this mountain. You've not come to the place where your ancestors came. You've not come to the place of the giving of the law where the people were utterly terrified. And God said, you can't come near. And the people said, we don't want to come near. This is terrifying. You see, he carries on. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And just to finish off, he says later on, and this is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Just add that into the picture as well. So he says to them, you haven't come to that mountain. You haven't come to Mount Sinai and the darkness and the gloom and the cloud and the thunder and the lightning and the trumpet blast and the law and the old covenant. But you've come to this. This might be a harder picture to understand. You kind of think, well, where have we come? And immediately they might think, actually, Mount Zion and Jerusalem, we understand that. Because actually in, the, in Israel, where Jerusalem is built, that's referred to as Mount Zion. There is a mountain sat there, sat there, mountain sit there, a mountain there, with the city of Jerusalem built on it. This is Mount Zion. But he's saying, no, no, I'm not talking about that even. I'm not talking about Jerusalem that was later to come. That was pointing forward to something even better. You don't come to an earthly mountain anymore. You're coming to something heavenly. 
You're coming to a heavenly reality. God's people gathered forever. God's people, his city, his, his people gathered together forever. An eternal kingdom. Not just a mountain on earth that's sat there. But God's kingdom, God's city, God's people. Wow, this is interesting. God's plan. This is where you have come. You've come to Mount Zion. You've come not to a place of terror and of fear and of, and of all these terrifying sounds and noises, but where have you come? To thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. To God's people gathered. The, can I find the right verse? The, the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is all God's people gathered in. But before, terror, terrifying. We can't come close. What is this? I don't even want to hear the voice. Now, joyful assembly. People gathered in. People brought close. No longer kept away, but able to approach with confidence. The church gathered in to God's presence. You see, in short, what is he describing? Here is a mountain you don't come to this mountain because something far better has come. Something far better has come. You don't stand here in front of Mount Sinai quaking in fear. You've been brought to something much better. You've been brought to something far more amazing. Look where you are. Look where you stand. You come to Mount Zion. You come to God himself. You are allowed in. Where before they couldn't come close, now you can come near. It's this wonderful contrast that he paints in their imagination. Look, look how it was and look how it now is. Massively different, massively contrasting, but the same God. The same awesome gods. See, people could look and think, well, what's changed then? Before God comes on the mountain, the people are quaking with fear and they dare not approach. And they can't approach. They're not allowed to come close. And God's awesome power is demonstrated. Wow. Oh, but now you're gathered in and the angels are singing and everything's lovely. Well, well what does that mean? Does that mean that God's kind of calmed down or something? Before he was a bit overly angry and now he's kind of gone a bit fluffy and tame he's kind of he's kind of mellowed out in his old age no no god hasn't changed god has always been perfect and will forever be perfect and is always the same yesterday today and forever this is the same god it's not oh good perhaps god has changed a bit now he maybe maybe he's a little bit less powerful or maybe he's a little bit less bothered about sin. He's kind of mellowed. No. You see, people make that case. They kind of say, ah, oh, well, look, when you look through the Old Testament, you see a God who seems pretty angry. You see the anger and judgment of God quite a lot. And then, then when you turn to the New Testament, you see God's grace and, and, and the mercy of God. There's no distinction. Let's throw that one out right now. There is no distinction throughout Scripture. This is God. 
He is the king on the throne. He is the one who created everything. He is the one who rules over everything. It's not like God was previously some kind of very angry, little bit kind of grumpy God who's kind of become a bit more cheerful. He's always been the perfect, righteous, awesome one who was not wrongly kind of losing his temper, he was always rightly angry at sin. And he still is. He's always been rightly, his, his wrath is rightly directed at sin because he's perfect and holy. You come to the same God. What does it say? Verse 23, you've come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all. It's the same God. It's the same God. And, and actually, it's the same people, if you like. We're not the Israelites who were stood at the mountain, but we're still the same imperfect people who could never be good enough for a perfect, holy God. And yet... This is the picture. You can come in assurance. You can come close. Your names are written in heaven. The spirits of the right made perfect. Well, what's happened? How has this happened? It's not, it's not that God's kind of decided that he was, he was too perfect and so he's kind of made allowances. It's not that we've suddenly become better and so we're now able to come before him. What has happened? Why is there such a difference, such a contrast before at Mount Sinai, terror, keep your distance, don't come near to God. Now, joy, closeness, come near. The church of Christ brought in. It's the same God, the same holy, mighty, perfect, wonderful God, and the same sinful people who could never be good enough, so why? You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's all because of Jesus. It is all because of Jesus, who is the mediator of the new covenant by his blood. You see, this picture he's painting is this. Look, before I gave the law on Mount Sinai. I gave the law to my people and said, follow my law. Keep going. This is the covenant. This is the covenant I make with you. But what he's been telling us all the way through this book is that covenant was only ever pointing towards something better. It was only ever pointing towards the day when Jesus would come and be a mediator of a new covenant. A much better covenant. A wonderful covenant. A wonderful relationship, in other words, between God and his people. God hasn't changed. The righteous wrath of God had to be satisfied. But what he's saying is, the old way was, come with the sacrifice, keep coming with the sacrifice, keep coming with the sacrifice, keep coming with the sacrifice that could never fully deal with sin, could never fully deal with the sin that was in us, could never change our hearts. But now, Jesus has come. What has he already said in the letter in chapter 2 and verse 9? 
we see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. What's he saying? Jesus died in our place. What's he saying? There was one sacrifice that could make a way. There was one sacrifice that could do the job and make a way for us to be with God. And it was Jesus. It was Jesus. As he goes on to say in chapter 10, and verse 11 again, he's talking about this comparison. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. This is what it was like. If we come with the sacrifice, okay, come again with another sacrifice. Come again with another sacrifice. You know what? It's never doing the job. It's never dealing with sin. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, who's this priest? It's Jesus. One time, a sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. Why did he sit down? Because his work was done. His one sacrifice had done it, had made a way. And he sat down at the right hand of God and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. This is the difference. This is the difference. This is why the writer to the Hebrews can say, you haven't come to Mount Sinai. Now, where you, where you had to stay far off, where you had to stay away, there was always a distance between you and God. Now you've been brought in. Why? Because Jesus has come and Jesus has died and Jesus has risen again. He's paid the price. He's the mediator of a new covenant and these wonderful words, his blood have spoken a better word than the blood of Abel. You kind of have to think about it. What does that mean? And yet if we look back in Genesis at the story of Cain and Abel when we can see... Cain says to Abel, come out into the fields with me. Come out into the fields with me. And there out in the field, Cain kills Abel. Murders him. And later on, God comes to Cain and he says, Cain, where is your brother? And Cain starts to get defensive and a bit dismissive. Well, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? God says to Cain, Cain... Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And what is Abel's blood crying? It's crying out for justice. Crying out for vengeance, perhaps. Crying out, this is not fair. This is wrong. Cain has killed me. This is not right. This was not how it was meant to be. Crying out for justice and vengeance to be done, for punishment to be exacted. This can't go unpunished. That's what Abel's blood is crying out. Yet what do we see? Jesus' blood cries out mercy, cries out forgiveness, cries out, I have paid the price, cries out, I've gone to the cross, I've paid it all. 
to enable your sins to be forgiven. Abel's blood, it's crying out for vengeance, for justice, justice needs to be done. Jesus' blood is crying out, justice has been done. I've done it, I've paid it, in your place. You deserve death, but I've taken it. You deserve to be punished, I've been punished. I went to the cross to enable your sins to be forgiven, to win for my Father a people who can draw near. Not just a people who are held at arm's length, but people who can draw near to him so we don't stand at Mount Sinai. The people, the writers writing to you, don't stand at Mount Sinai. The old has gone and the new has come. Because through the blood of Jesus, we can approach the very throne of God with confidence. As the writer's already said, therefore let us approach the throne of grace with confidence and receive mercy in our time of need. We can come boldly before him. Where before the Israelites could only cower at the foot of the mountain. You can't come close. Well, to be honest, I don't think we even want to come close. We are. We can see how imperfect we are and how perfect he is. And there's no way we can come in. Where before there was death to any that approached, now there is mercy in the blood of Jesus. This is the difference. We don't come to Mount Sinai, we come to Mount Zion. The heavenly reality of God's people gathered together, his city, the city of God. This is where we stand. This is where we stand. In his grace, we're brought into freedom. We're free to follow, free to come near, free from slavery to sin. Free from the need to earn acceptance. Sometimes we sing that song and it says, free to live, free to give, free to be. I'm free to love you, Lord. I'm chosen, I am free, I'm living for eternity. This is what he has done for us because we're accepted in Christ. See, this is the great contrast he is describing in this wonderful picture. This is where we stand in the knowledge and security of the blessing that we have in Christ. Saved by his grace. Saved by the fact he died in our place. That he intercedes for us before the Father. That, in effect, when God looks at us, if we're in Christ, what does God see? He sees Jesus and his righteousness. Therefore, what do we do? What do we do? Verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? See, the writer of the Hebrews has been so good at going from encouragement to warning in, like, the blink of, the blink of a, the click of a finger, the blink of an eye... But this is the truth. He's been warning the people again and again through the letter. Not to make them scared, but to, but to, to press on them, look, this is the truth. This is the truth that Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. He is the only way. As he said in chapter 3, quoting from the Old Testament, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, but come to him. 
What's the warning to do? It's to recognise that he is our only hope. He is our only hope, that this is the good news. So therefore, don't refuse it. Never refuse it. We are lost without it. Without the blood of Jesus, we are dead in our sins. So therefore, if you don't know him today, here is the opportunity. Here is the glorious truth. In Jesus, there is forgiveness. In Jesus, there is hope. In Jesus, there is eternal life. In Jesus, whatever we have done, whatever we will do, whatever our life has been like, there is hope. But he is the only hope. Do not refuse him who speaks. For he is the only way. Our writer has been constantly encouraging us, let's run the race. Let's follow him. This is the life he has called us to. Therefore, what are we to do? We're to recognise the wonder and the value and the privilege of the gift that we've been given. Recognise the wonderful place that we have been brought into. Where do we stand? We stand as a part of the people of God. If we're in Christ, we are brought into an eternal kingdom that will never be shaken. As he goes on to say, everything else will be shaken. I'm going to shake, there's going to be, blah, blah, blah. he quotes the prophet Haggai. He says, once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. And the words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. What's he saying? He's saying actually eventually everything will be shaken. Everything will pass away except this which is eternal. His kingdom, his glorious kingdom that he is establishing that will go on forever. This is what we've been brought into. Recognise this wonderful truth that he's brought us into, that Jesus is the only solid ground, but he is solid. So what are we to do? Recognise where we stand. And as he concludes, verse 28 and 29, Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Our only response can be worship. Worship in reverence and awe. And in saying that, this, that's not a call from the writer just for some good singing. It's not calling for a really good worship time on a Sunday. This is about our lives. This is about all of ourselves. This is what Jesus has done. He has bought us at a price, a great price. He has won us. He has brought us in and now we are his. All of us, all of our lives. We're called to live lives of worship, worshipping in reverence and awe. Not because this is what we must do, but because we are thankful, because we're grateful for everything that he has done and because he is at work in us, because he's working in us. No longer do we have a set of rules to follow on a piece of paper that, that, that we've got to tick off all these things and then God will say, yeah, well done, I accept you. No, he's accepted us, he's brought us in and he is at work in us, transforming us, making us more like him.
Terry Virgo posted on Facebook recently, Christianity is not a moral code associated with a dead teacher. It's a dynamic transformation by Christ who overcame death. What's he saying? He's not saying that, well, Jesus turned up and he set down some rules for people to follow and then he died and now we've got to follow the rules. No, Jesus turned up, brought some great teaching, told us, come and follow me, then he died and rose again and now, we're, now he's alive. And now he's alive in us and he's at work in us and he's transforming us. So Christianity isn't a moral code associated with a dead teacher. It's lives transformed by the power of God in us. You see, that's what it was before at Sinai. Here's the law. Here's the law. Here's the law. It's written down. This is what you need to follow. You need to bring this sacrifice and you need to bring this tithe at this time and this tithe at another time and you need to bring this sacrifice on that day and you need to bring this sacrifice once a year and you need to bring this and you need to come to this celebration. And if you get all that right, then maybe you've got a chance. Whereas not now. Not now, these are the things you must do. That's gone. It's gone now. But in a sense, we can kind of trip ourselves up. Because it's gone. But it's not, it's not just gone in the sense of, well, before we had a set of rules and there were lots of them. And now, now we still have a set of rules, but basically Jesus has come and wiped away all the rules. So we've got this set of rules that is just blank. So we've got to follow the rules. and There aren't any. So anything goes. It's great. I'm following all the rules because they're not there. It's not like that. Because Christianity isn't a moral code associated with a dead teacher. It's not, we've got to follow the rules and there just happen to be none. It's a completely different thing. The moral code, it's not a moral code. It's a transformation by Jesus. What does he say uh, in the prophets? I'm putting my law in your hearts. I'm transforming you from the inside out. So actually... The moral code on a board on the wall has been torn up and taken out, taken out of the way. God is at work in us to transform us to be more like him. It's not that God's just suddenly become more relaxed and said, oh, there just aren't any rules, just do what you like. He said, I'm saving, this is my grace. I'm saving you and transforming you. I'm going to make you more like me. So there's, so now... The rules are gone in that sense. There's no pressure to perform or to earn favour. We're not accepted because we do the right things at the right times. But now, with Jesus living inside us, we are to live lives of worship to him. Because that's what he does in us. And so out of joy and love for him, and by the transforming power of Jesus, by the Holy Spirit at work in us, what does the writer go on to say in chapter 13, verse 15? It's through Jesus, therefore, let us continually to offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. That's what it's saying. Jesus is at work in us, and he's leading us to do what he longs for us to do. Not, see, we can trip ourselves up again. Oh, yeah, the rules are gone, so I don't have to do that, but... What it should be is, I should want to do that. 
I should, so I'll put that rule back up. I should want to do this. I should want to do that. I should. No, this is God transforming us. He's doing the work. He's, he's at work in us to make us more like him. You see, we can so easily just put it back to being rules. No. I get to be with him. I get to come into his presence. I get to know him more. It's not, do I have to read this? I want to know him. I want to know Jesus. I want to know who he is. Well, does it have to be half an hour in the morning and half an hour in the evening? No, I want to know him. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's actually, I want to want to know him. But actually, it's really hard even to open it up and get in there. But I, this is my desire. It's deep in my heart because this is what Jesus has done in me. But I want to know him. I want to pray. I want to hear his voice. I want to be with him. I get to gather with other believers. I get to gather with my family and worship him. Not, do I have to come? No. He's put it in us. I get to give. Not, do I have to? Well, before you had to tithe. You had to give this tithe or that tithe or this 10% then. This is what your duty is. This is what you must do. No, now we get to. It's the Holy Spirit at work in us. I get to be generous. I get to be those, someone who, who gives generously to those who are in need. I get to tell others about him. Do I have to? I get to. I'm caught up in this. I, I can struggle with this massively. I can stand up here and talk to all of you and think, actually, I get out there and there's someone to talk to. Um, this is, it can be scary. It can be hard. But what deep down, what's going on in us, we want to be more like Jesus. We want to be more like him. This is what he's put inside us. There is this longing deep down. Perhaps that does sometimes express itself best as, actually, I want to, want to. I don't yet want to, but my lo the longing is there. I want to get past this fact that I'd rather sit at home and not do it. But really, I don't want that. I want to follow after Jesus. I want to go after him. You see, it's no longer about what we have to do. It's no longer about trying to make the grade that we would never get to. This is where we stand, in the grace of God. We can come to the awesome God of the universe. Not because we've got everything right, because we all haven't. But because Jesus died and rose again. Because Jesus paid the price. Because Jesus has made a way. So therefore we have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, God's, God's heavenly city, the church of the firstborn, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to thousands upon thousands of angels celebrating. You see, it's no longer the law dictating, but it's the spirit at work in us that causes us to worship out of love and thankfulness to him. Let's live in that glorious truth in the freedom that he has won, in the fact that everything has changed because of Jesus. I would call us today, let's surrender ourselves to him once again. I will tell you the story of my Dennis the Menace plaster. 
Well, the fact that I've got Dennis the Menace plaster on is because we have no other plasters in the house. <laughs> but I think, see, we could, we could over-analogise this story and it becomes a bad story, but the story is this, that God really spoke to me on Thursday. I was coming down Shirecliffe Road, from here down to the Jubilee Centre, on my bike. And I got the real sense, suddenly, I should go and see Terry and Julie. Then I thought, in my, in my great wisdom now, I'm just thinking that. I should carry on. That's not, probably not the right time, probably not good. Carry on. Went past the end of their road. And then God said, you should go and see Terry and Julie. I came and saw Terry and Julie eventually. We'll get to that. <laughs> Slammed on my brakes. Thought about turning round. Was nearly at a stop. Fell, fell off my bike. So the moral of the story is not, listen to God, otherwise something really bad is going to happen. <laughs> see, see we, could go, we could go really terrible with this. But I think it was important. I fell off my bike. That got my attention. It got my attention because the point I think of the story, and I went and saw Terry and Julie, and actually it became more of a fact of, Terry, Julie, can you sort me out? I need a plaster. Um, but it was good. It, you are. <laughs> No, they weren't Dennis. They, they had sensible plasters. It was good. Um, <laughs> but the point is this. I want to be one who hears God and does what he says. It wasn't a massive thing. And it's not a, if you don't, then suddenly something terrible is going to happen. That's not the point. That just got my attention. I want to be one who hears God and does what he says. I want to worship him in reverence, in awe. I want to go after him because he has done it all. He's paid the price. So I would call us today, let's surrender to him. Every area of our lives. That might be a process. Oh, there's still other things. There's still other things. That area, God, that I need to give to you. I've been holding on to that. Come to him and ask him to work in us. All those areas of I want to want to. Or... I'm not sure yet. I'm not, I, fill me with your compassion, God. Fill me with your love. Ask him. He loves us. He's the one who set us free. So he can help us again and again. That he would set us free from fear and from legalism. Because we don't come to Mount Sinai any longer. We come to Mount Zion, to our heavenly father, to the awesome, mighty God. We can draw near because he has won us and he is living in us that we may follow him.